Amen. Well, the uh, scripture text for this morning is Romans chapter 2, the first four verses. That's on page 1126 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Either just listen or, or read along to this portion of God's Word. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's not uncommon uh, for us to, to come across stories, or I guess in the, in the Internet age, videos, on occasion of, uh, of famous people, uh, powerful people, being pulled over for a traffic stop and, and, and telling uh, the police officer, don't you know who I am? I know I've read various stories of here. Uh, John's not here this morning. I wonder if he got that when, when he was a, was a police officer around here. They, there is a, a claim sometimes that the famous and the rich make in such situations that even though they, they, they've done something illegal, that their position makes them immune from penalties for that. We can also think of, uh, of a different example of people from foreign countries. And I believe this happens quite a bit in New York. I've read about it over the years. People who openly do the same sorts of things or commit other crimes, not just, uh, not just traffic violations. And when they're pulled over, uh, they can present a card that, that, uh, that, makes, that, that shows their diplomatic immunity, that they are from a different country and their status as such makes them immune uh, to being punished under our laws. Well, I thought about those two examples in connection with what Paul is addressing here in our first four verses, and what he'll go on to address uh, throughout all of chapter 2 for that matter. That the Jews of Paul's day, as well as previous generations, sadly, did exactly that. That they claimed some sort of immunity because they were God's chosen people. And uh, they were better, and even when they did sin, it wasn't in the same order, and and they sort of get a pass because they are Abraham's children. Uh, their Jewish heritage uh, gives them uh, a pass on being held responsible for their sins. And Paul writes very clearly in chapter 2 that that is an incredibly false view of things. And Paul, of course, would know as he is a Jew and used to be a Pharisee. He will tell us that there is no excuse for sin, 
And there is no one that can claim some sort of status by race or religion or any other thing that, that makes them immune from God's wrath upon our sins. Rather, we need to face our sins and to repent and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. That is the only way to successfully avoid the due punishment for your sins. And we'll see that as we work our way through. First, you do the same in verse 1. Now last week, we finished our look at verses 26 through 32, which concluded chapter 1. And there we saw Paul tell us why we all need the gospel, why we need the gift of righteousness by trusting faith alone in, in Jesus Christ alone. Now we need that imputed righteousness because we are all unrighteous, each and every one of us. Now, he focused on the Gentile world in chapter 1, and he showed there how mankind knows of God's existence and nature, that he has clearly revealed this in his creation. Yet mankind suppresses and, and defies that truth. And instead of worshiping the one true God, we, as mankind, indulge in sin and invent false gods and religions. Paul gave examples uh, in, in our verses last time of the wickedness that results from man's rejection of the true God as God gives mankind over to our sinful desires. Paul mentioned uh, same-sex desires and sexual acts which go against God's natural order. And God also gave us over to a depraved mind, Paul said, as we do not understand or think rightly, but we have blindness of mind regarding God's revealed truth that is so obvious. Paul then launched into a list of 21 examples of sins. And the list included broad terms like wickedness and, and unrighteousness, as well as noting specific sins, such as deceit or, or greed or gossip or being disobedient to parents. And he added that although every person knows that these place them under God's judgment and that we face eternal punishment for them. We not only continue to do them, but we even approve others <coughs> who do the same or similar things. And in all of that, we not only see our society and our move away from the Lord, but we should also see ourselves as individuals and our sins and our need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ and the, the grace and forgiveness offered in him alone. Now in today's passage, Paul continues to point to people's needs, uh, need of the gospel by showing how that's, that need is true for Jews as well. A Jews reading chapter 1 uh, would agree with Paul's condemnation of those wicked people out in the world the Gentiles around them, and certainly would not in agreement that those people deserve God's wrath. But they see themselves as different, as unlike those people. Yet what Paul will point out in chapter 2, the Jews are no better. They are just as sinful as the idolaters and the pagan peoples of the world. Maybe a little bit different in the way in which they do it, but they are just as wicked. Even though Jews have the benefit of God's written law, they break that law, just as Gentiles sin against God by what they know of Him in creation. The Jews thought themselves to be in a privileged position, 
relying on their place as God's chosen people. But they sin too. And their pointing at the sins of others does not erase their own sins or God's wrath, which is due to them for them. And the same can be said in the church. There is a call here for those who are part of God's people to see our own sins and our own need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ and not to rely on the false notion of privilege or moral superiority simply by being a part of the church. There's a reminder here that we all need Jesus. And so we begin with verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now Paul begins with a therefore, which means that what's about to be said is based on what he's just finished saying. And what he's been saying uh, has gone on for quite some time, and it's summarized best in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is why people need the gospel, why people need Jesus. Now chapter 2 does make a shift in, in whom it is speaking about. Paul's been speaking about Gentile sinfulness in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he'll focus primarily on the Jews' sinfulness and being under God's wrath as well. Now, that will not become clear until verse 17. He doesn't mention the, the Jews specifically until verse 17. And so, in the meantime, chapter 2 will speak in broad categories that really captures anyone, Jew or Gentile, and our tendency to see the sins of others but excuse those who do the same but excuse ourselves even when we do the same things notice how direct he is here you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment now we all make moral judgments every day and in fact god calls on us to do that paul will go on to say in romans 12 and 9 Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Uh, We all make moral judgments, right? And yet, what Paul points to in our verse 1 is the tendency of fellow Jews, and really any person who thinks of themselves as moral, to be quick to pass judgment on others for their sins and their immorality, but excuse ourselves as innocent or somehow better. Jews could look at the list of sins from chapter 1 and and think to themselves about Gentiles that they know or have heard about who do these things. And to just dismiss it that way, it's those pagans, those wicked people, those sinful Gentiles who do those things. But not me. I'm a member of God's covenant. I'm one of the chosen people. And even if they did admit their sins on some level... They claimed a sort of immunity by being a child of Abraham. And yet Paul says they have no excuse. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. An honest review 
of the sin list in, in chapter 1, 29 through 31, will certainly show that even a religious Jew is guilty of many of these same things. I mean, really, who hasn't lied? Who hasn't gossiped? Who hasn't broken a promise? Who hasn't coveted something that someone else has? Who hasn't disobeyed their parents? But it's much easier to see others' sins than admit your own. And remember what Jesus pointed out in the Gospels, that the Jews of his day had this handy practice of externalizing the law and seeing themselves as righteous as compared to Gentiles and sinners because they would go through a formal external obedience. That's why Jesus addressed the matters of the heart and the deeper meaning of the law in Matthew 5. For example, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be, uh, shall, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And you'll recall that he went on from there giving similar examples. Paul is agreeing here. And he's pointing out the hypocrisy of people judging and condemning others for the same sins that they themselves commit. His point is that being a Jew doesn't give them a pass on their sins. And for that matter, being a moral Gentile, a a moral non-Jew, does not make anyone less guilty of their own sins. There is, as Paul uh, might put it, a blindness of heart in, in failing to see that when you condemn condemn others for sins that you also commit, that you're condemning yourself. The point is that we're all sinners, and excusing yourself is neither true nor wise. Second, God judges according to the truth in verse 2. And here Paul writes, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So Paul tells the Jew who is self-righteous and and judging others while excusing himself for doing the same things that the Lord God, the judge of all men, does not judge in such a a, a twisted way. No, the judgment of God rightly falls on all those who practice sin. Uh, The Greek that's translated rightly falls here is literally according to truth in the Greek. And the New King James translation is helpful here. It says the judgment of God is according to truth. God's judgment is impartial and honest, and it does not cheat in any way. As we sing in Psalm 96, 13, the Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And in Psalm 19, verse 9, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. God's judgments against sin are totally truthful and are in agreement with the facts. And he does not turn a blind eye and he does not play favorites. He judges Jews and Gentiles according to the same standard. 
Douglas Moo writes, the Jews would want to include as part of the basis by which God judges them their special relationship that they enjoy with God. But Paul states here that Jews are not shielded from the consequences of their sins. God judges in truth, and sin is sin, no matter who commits it. And so he is pointing that out clearly here. And it's easy as well, we might add, for church people to practice the same thing. We can look out on an increasingly immoral culture and rightfully judge as wicked many of the things that we see. But we dare not fail to look also at our own sins and give ourselves an easier time because of our place in the church or the wickedness around us. We must realize that our sins are offensive to God as well and not just the sins of those people, whoever they might be. We must look at ourselves and not pretend that we are, 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 are given a pass simply because we attend a church. We're not more wicked as we would judge it in regards than the sins of others. Well, third, no exceptions in verse 3. Here Paul writes, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here Paul directly applies the truth of verse 2 to the the person who thinks and acts this way. And he does so with a rhetorical question that demands a no answer. And rhetorical questions are, are interesting. Paul does them quite a bit. They require you, or should require you at least, to pause and to think and respond to the question. So Paul is saying, in a positive sense here, don't you think, or don't think rather, that you will escape God's judgment for doing the same things that you condemn in others. And he, he points that out clearly here. That you don't get excused due to privilege or status or race or any other thing that you might claim. <clears throat> now this is true of the Jews. And Paul knows this point well because he used to live it. Remember, he is a Jew and he used to be a Pharisee. And in fact, in Philippians, he reflects on his old life in a way that reflects of the way he thought of himself as superior because of his position in his religious practice and his Jewishness. He says in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He was a good, obedient Pharisee. And he knew it. And he thought of himself as superior. In Luke 18, and Doug read earlier, or Marlon read earlier, <clears throat> Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. And that points to that same thing. Two men up to the, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Sadly, so many Jews thought they could escape judgment and consequences for sins based on their covenant status as Jews and their outward morality. But their sins are just as sinful as the sins of Gentiles, of the unclean or the, the unfaithful Jew that they would look down upon. They do the same things. And God judges in truth and without prejudice. God has one standard, and all people are guilty before the just and holy God. And we can also say that this would apply to any non-Jews, any people that we, we, uh, we might see who think that they are moral and that they can gain God's favor by living a good life, uh, a moral or ethical life, however they might define that. That such people are also corrected here. We all sin, and the standard is not being better than others. No doubt we are all guilty of sin, even sins that we judge others for committing. For Jews or Gentiles or anyone, being self-righteous is foolishness, for we all do the same things that we condemn in others. And there is no immunity that we can base or that is based on in special status that gives us a pass. God is no respecter of persons, the Scripture tells us. And sin is sin, and all sin places us under God's just judgment. Therefore, the self-righteous person also stands under God's judgment. And so forth, repent in verse 4. And here Paul asks another rhetorical question that very powerfully points out the false and dangerous position that the self-righteous person has taken. If you think you can sin and avoid judgment, you're not only wrong, but you're actually disrespecting and despising the kindness of God. The proper response is repentance for your sins against God. Paul writes in verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now the Lord, or the word rather translated, think lightly, means to despise, disrespect, to feel contempt for something or someone, thinking it bad or without value. And what's being despised here is something that is actually of great value. That is, the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. Now, kindness is God's goodness and his benevolence, his blessings of care and helpfulness. Tolerance refers to God's delaying of punishment. God is often pleased to hold back from bringing the wrath that's due to us for our sins. He gives people time. And patience, or long-suffering, depending upon your translation, carries that same idea of delay or holding back. And that is especially in the face of being provoked. God has demonstrated these wonderful riches toward men 
by not immediately striking us down and sending us to hell for our first sin, right? Or the next sin, or the next hundred sins, or however many sins we commit in a day or a month or a year, that he holds back and is patient. It's interesting that sometimes people question God's existence or his goodness because people who do wicked things are permitted to continue to do wicked things and aren't struck down or judged. But such questioners rarely turn the question back on themselves, right? And say, well, I'm a sinner too. Why has God allowed me to live? And that's a good question. It's because he's been patient. And disregarding God's patience and his restraint and his kindness and holding back or delaying judgment for sin shows a a not knowing in the sense of not considering the purpose for which that delay is given. It's not so that you might continue to indulge in sin. He's delaying so that you might have time to repent. And here he calls that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. That his showing of his patience and continuing people to continue to sin each and every day without him bringing down judgment is a kindness. It ought to cause the sinner to reflect on on God's goodness and how he might be forgiven and reconciled rather than to keep on sinning or to point to others who they perceive as worse sinners. This all points us to the offer of repentance. Sadly, the Jews often did not respond rightly to God's patience, but presumed on God, presumed on their status as God's chosen people, rather than repent. John Murray writes, The presumptuous Jew interpreted the special goodness of God to him as the guarantee of immunity from the criteria by which other men would be judged. He has two sets of rules, one for the Jews, one for those people. That is completely and totally wrong. Sadly, Israel had a history of doing this. The scriptures are full of examples of faithless and sinful and idolatrous Israel sinning in various ways, yet presuming on God's favor because they were his people. And time and again, God sent prophets to tell them, no, you are not exempted from judgment. You will be judged just as the Gentiles. There is no double standard. You need to trust and repent and stop relying on your family heritage to give you a pass. There are lots of examples of this. I thought of the one in Isaiah chapter or chapter 1, where God equates Israel in her sins to Sodom and Gomorrah, which would have been absolutely appalling for them to hear. And yet the point is that they thought that their place with God and their religious acts made it all okay. But it didn't. Isaiah 1, starting at verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
I hate your new moon festivals and your, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And so at the, uh, the further on in that chapter, they are called to repentance. Starting at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And so there was that that call to repentance, to, to, to not just sin thinking you have immunity, but rather to turn to the Lord, uh, to reject sin and turn toward righteousness and, and seek forgiveness in God's grace. The point is that the Jews are no better than Gentiles in God's judgment of their sins. If they do not know the Lord by faith, if they do not come to Him in repentance, but simply presume on their position or being better than others, then they are just as lost because God is no respecter of persons. And ourselves, we dare not think that being moral and in the church makes anyone free from guilt and sin. But there's the, uh, the famous illustration of the evangelist uh, Billy Sunday, that being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a barn makes you a horse. We are not to rely on our participation in the church or being better than outwardly wicked people that we know or read about or see around us and presume that one is right with God. God has not allowed you to live this far or has that you might presume on his forgiveness. If you haven't seen the wickedness in your, of your sins against the holy God, that you're deserving of hell just as much as a murderer or a homosexual or a God-hating atheist, then you're squandering and wasting the days that God has given you in his patience and kindness. We all need to repent. We all need to trust in Jesus. And certainly that same warning applies to unchurched folk as well. Maybe you never go to church. And yet you try to be a moral person. You obey the the government. You pay your taxes. You're faithful to your spouse. You're good to your kids and to your neighbors. You're, You're kind and you're honest. And you try to live a good life. But you too are fooling yourself. If you think you'll be fine when you die and stand before God based on your goodness. If you do not trust and repent in Jesus Christ, you too will have squandered the days that God gave you here that were given and extended as opportunities to repent. God is kind and patient, and he has held back death for us up to this point, if you're, you're watching or listening, and showing his kindness in countless ways, not so that we would ignore our guilt and presume on his favor, 
but so that we would be moved to repent and trust in Jesus. And so we might ask, what is repentance? Well, it is the recognition in your heart of the filthiness and offensiveness of your sins, that they deserve God's judgment and that you deserve hell and that you hate your sins and and grieve over them as offenses against the good and holy and just God who made you. And you then turn from them to God, taking hold of the offer of forgiveness of sins given in the gospel to those who trust and repent in the person and work of Jesus Christ and, and trust in him alone to reconcile you to God. And that salvation given by grace alone is, is yours as you take hold of him. And then in that life, turn from your sins and pursue obedience and godliness. As Paul will write in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. Now, we all know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so each and every one of us is a sinner. And we fall under his just wrath. We're all guilty and deep down we all know it. And so our only hope is found not in being better than some or counting on God to approve you for doing your best or or relying on your race or your status or your going to church or any other thing to give you a pass, but rather to confess your sin, to admit your guilt, and to ask for further forgiveness that's offered only in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came for the purpose of securing salvation for those who would trust in him. He is God the Son, eternal second person of the triune God, who became also fully man to be a saving substitute. He fully obeyed all of God's laws, which all of us failed to do. And on the cross, uh, he took upon himself the wrath of God for all who would trust in him. All the wrath of God that was due to us for our sins was poured out on him. He was dead and buried, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Uh, An accepted sacrifice and a living Savior. And all those who trust in him are are covered in his righteousness, are forgiven by his sacrifice, and are given eternal life and, and fellowship with the triune God. Paul again from Romans 3, By the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And so that gift of righteousness is needed by everyone. There is no special status of anyone that doesn't need it. And that sacrifice for sin to avoid God's eternal wrath is also needed by everyone. They want to avoid it themselves. And so the call is to take hold of Christ and the forgiveness offered 
in him by God's grace alone. That is the only way of salvation. Do not downplay your own guilt and sin, but rather admit it, confess it, repent of it in Jesus Christ, and know that wonderful promised gift of forgiveness and salvation. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word. We ask that you would apply it to our hearts. God, we do pray uh, that 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 uh, you would apply this to our hearts as we think on ourselves. It is so easy to think about the sins of others, uh, and yet uh, you call on us uh, to think on our own sins. We we thank you as you've worked in us to convict us of sin, to bring us in contact with the gospel to truly repent of our sin against you and embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. And we thank you for that blessing of forgiveness and new life, for for salvation and and reconciliation and fellowship with you. And we pray uh, that uh, for those around us or for those who may be watching or, or listening who have not done this but somehow are presuming simply on being better than others, we might perceive it, or going to church, or other reasons that we might think ourselves privileged, uh, that, that you would convict us that such privileges, real or imagined, do not excuse us from being held accountable for our sins, but that we might uh, renounce any thought of privilege, and like you worked in Paul so many years ago, admit in, that we are sinners, and trust in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness found only in him. We pray uh, that you would be encouraging and strengthening us in, in these things and uh, that, that we might be reaching out to the world around us, that they too might come to know Christ by your grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let's close.